Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out how a Calgary restaurant invented the province's most loved Chinese dish and how the story behind ginger beef is about a lot more than just food. We tackle myths around stroke after the topic took center stage in the Pennsylvania Senate race after Democratic candidate John Fetterman had some struggles communicating following a stroke five months ago and it has his opponents calling his ability to do the job into question. New census data released today shows that 8.3 million people, or 23% of Canada's population, were or are immigrants or permanent residents, the largest share in history. We find out how Canada is adapting, are we doing enough, and how smaller communities are both benefiting from and trying to adapt to a growing number of new arrivals. Well, new census data released today shows that 8.3 million people or 23% of our population were or are immigrants or permanent residents, the largest share in our history. To put that into perspective, the previous high had been 22.3% all the way back in 1921, after just after the First World War. Now, the numbers paint a picture of an increasingly diverse country where immigrants and permanent residents account for more than 70% of population growth. Uh, between 2016 and 2021, and now make up a larger share of our population than any other G7 country. And while it continues to mean challenges when it comes to housing and healthcare and so on for new arrivals trying to settle in, it also drives economic growth. And unlike many countries that I've been to, especially in Europe, there seems to be a political and social consensus here that this is all a very good thing. A very good thing, rather. John Shields is a professor in politics and public administration at Toronto Metropolitan University who's done a lot of work on immigration trends, and he joins me now. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you for the invitation. I know, given government policy, that this probably isn't a surprise, but Canada is increasingly becoming a very diverse place. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, this is a a longer-term trend, but of course, this has been uh, speeded up a little bit uh, further especially since the pandemic, because immigration is seen as one of these uh, solutions to increase and uh, strengthen the economy. And so our uh, immigration numbers have been uh, boosted uh, even further over the last number of years. We're now at the forefront of the G7, which is uh, which is an interesting place to be because there's so much competition now for skilled economic migrants. And it feels like Canada at least is doing a good job of attracting people. You were mentioning earlier uh, when we first started speaking, that uh, that a lot of the people who are coming here are actually coming here for school and then stay. Yeah, I mean, you know, Canada, I think, is number four now and threatened to become number three in terms of the number of uh, foreign students in the in the country. And uh, of course, they also have the right to work. And just recently, their hours have been boosted to uh, be even full time uh, beyond the twenty uh, hour limit before. And this is, I think, an indication of the you know dire need and the the labor force for a whole variety of of skills and so students you know one of the really attractive parts of becoming a foreign student in Canada is that number one it's a tolerant society it's a you know embraces multiculturalism uh, but also uh, the ability to work and the ability to also apply for permanent residency any other any other trends in these in this new data that uh, that stood out to you? Uh, yeah, I think you know these are things that I think have been occurring over the last little while, and uh, they've continued. And one of that is the the movement away from uh, settling in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, the so called MTV, 
but I mean, those trends are are modest, right? There's a, a few percentage point uh, shifts there. It's still an urban affair. I mean, there's still 90% of immigrants are moving to centers that are 100,000 or more, uh, but they're diversifying out from those three sort of gateway cities. And, you know, part of that, I think, is just the uh, the cost of housing that is pricing a lot of people out of these markets. Yeah. Are we, are we, I mean, it's one thing to invite people to come here. It's another thing to help them settle, to get them settled. Yeah. Um, are we doing enough on the other end of this to make sure that people coming to this country, uh, that their dreams and aspirations are being, um, are, are being met, so to speak, or at least we're paving the way for them to meet them? Uh, well, I think we could definitely do more. There is more supports that are needed. The, those settlement agencies came under a lot of stress uh, during the uh, the pandemic, and they've been having a lot of uh, trouble in terms of retaining their experienced staff. The um, uh, the amount they're able to pay those people and the the benefits and so forth uh, are just not competitive with other parts of the economy. So that is a long term problem. Putting more dollars into it is, uh, I think, an important way uh, to boost that. Uh, I think the um, uh, the other aspect here has been, you know, the problem of housing costs. Now, this is not just a problem for immigrants; it's a problem for uh, a lot of the Canadian population. But housing costs are a real a real challenge for for newcomers when when they arrive, and of course, a lot of newcomers are developing strategies uh, uh, such as intergenerational households in order to try to uh, deal with this. I want to go back to something you said a bit earlier, where, again, you know, we do see the majority of, of people coming to this country settling in larger places. Yeah. Um, it feels like we, we are still in the process of sort of creating two kind of different countries, one very multicultural, increasingly multicultural um, spots and elsewhere where there's very little. Uh, but yeah. politically, it feels like the country is still quite aligned when it comes to immigration and the benefits of it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the role of multiculturalism uh, overall in Canada, I think, has played an important role with with respect to this. There is, you know, a certain urban-rural divide within uh, the Canadian uh, Canadian society. And as the rural areas get older, you know, they, they become more threatened. And I think, you know, uh, they become a little bit more defensive and perhaps a little bit less embracing of the diversity. But overall, you know, even in those uh, those communities, uh, there's a growing uh, recognition about the value of immigrants and the, how immigrants are can play an important role in terms of revitalizing uh, those communities. So I think that, you know, the, the, the economics of immigration, I think, are are so positive that I think it uh, is really important in terms of uh, providing a general kind of consensus around uh, immigration. Yeah, because- all, all the political parties are yeah. pro-immigrant, although some are more pro-immigrant than others. We have a very large immigrant uh, population. They are the majority in, the, in quite a number of, of, of critical uh, constituencies that the parties need to win to be able to hold office. Doing anti-immigrant rhetoric uh, is not a way to political success in this country, as it has been in some uh, other European or, or the U.S., do you think it'll continue even if we hit economic rough times? Yeah. There used to be a time when uh, we we had something called, you know, tap on, tap off when the economy went down. We would bring in less immigrants. And, uh, of course, as the economy 
began to improve, we would bring in more. But now I think the calculus is a different one. Uh, now the calculus is that immigrants, regardless of the current economic conditions, bring a lot of economic activity uh, with them. You know, when they settle, they spend a lot of money and they make up for really important gaps uh, in the labor market that are still there during recessionary times. I don't think it's accidental that the government, one of its main strategies uh, in terms of moving out of the pandemic, where there was a, a great fear that a recession was going to, a deep, very deep recession was going to hit, that Canada chose the path towards increasing immigration as a way of uh, of helping to mitigate that. So I, th I think the understanding and it is uh, seen differently by most uh, economists and public policymakers, certainly within within Canada today. And overall, uh, even though you know we've got some economic challenges for sure, an embryonics poll that was, has just been uh, published uh, tells us that 69% of the Canadian population uh, supports current expanded levels of immigration. And even though you know we have high inflation and you know, there's some signs that there, there could be some economic troubles. John Shields, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure. We're talking about immigration uh, this half hour. Canada has the most immigrants as a portion of our population ever. In fact, the last time we saw anything like this was all the way back in 1921, right after the end of the First World War. It's really been a testament to the fact that Canada is welcoming more and more people into the country, really for the economic benefit of it. One of the things we have been noticing, though, is that more and more people are going to cities other than Montreal, Toronto and Vancouver. Uh, still, you know, about 90 percent of recent immigrants do settle in cities with at least 100,000 residents, so not small towns. Um and Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver welcomed more than half of them between 2016 and 2021. But that is, in fact, down uh, from what it was in 2016. And it's continuing to drop. Housing's probably, again, a big part of that. But, uh, for instance, Ottawa Gatineau saw its population share of new immigrants rise from 3.1% to 4.4% in 2021. Kitchener, Cambridge, Waterloo saw its population of new immigrants double from 1.2% to 2.1% in that time span. So, other areas are seeing big growth in their immigrant population. So what impact is that having? And are the resources in place in those areas to make sure that new arrivals settle in and succeed? Well, joining me now is Tara Bedard. She's executive director of the Waterloo Region Immigration Partnership. Tara, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. So it's been, we've talked about this for a long time, about how many people coming to this country are no longer going to sort of the three big cities, you know, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, and heading to other parts of the country. Uh, your area being one of them, but you were saying this isn't new. This has been going on for a while. Yeah. Um, you know, we've been seeing as, as the federal government has been on a path for almost 10 years now to grow immigration into Canada, that, you know, we're seeing that trend happen here in Waterloo Region. And as we look at the... Um, you know, the landing state for people who are coming into the community as new permanent residents that are let out by Immigration Canada on a regular basis. We're definitely seeing an uptick in numbers, particularly in the last four to five years. Yeah. How is that? Uh, how is that for you? Because clearly that's uh, that's a lot more uh, work to try and help people settle in. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the, the organizations in our community that provide settlement and other services for new immigrants are, are seeing this in their services. There's a lot more people coming into the community, so there's a lot more people entering services and being supported. Um, 
you know, I think it means a lot of different things for a community. One thing is, you know, do we have the services in place to be able to support people as as they come into the community? The other things that we're looking at and try to work with our area and municipalities and others on is, you know, do we have enough housing for everybody? Do we have appropriate housing to meet the differing needs of people who are coming into the community? Do we have enough place in our healthcare system for everybody who is coming in together with everybody else who is already here? And we look at things like, you know, how are people welcomed into this community? You know, one thing that the data published today by Stats Canada really pointed out is how diverse the population that is moving into Canada now is with, um, I think, over 60% of new immigrants coming from Asia and the Middle East. You know, what is their welcome when, in, when they come into this community? How are they able to find home and really develop a sense of belonging and connection to our community? Yeah, the one size fits all uh, would clearly not work now with so many people coming from so many different backgrounds, uh, you know, different family sizes and so on. Um, how do you make it work then? Uh, and and you mentioned housing, and I know housing has been a big problem. I mean, it's a problem across the board, uh, but we see those numbers borne out in the statistics today that that housing for for immigrants and for those on permanent residence is a real challenge. It, it definitely is, you know, for immigrants and for others. We're you know, like other communities, we have um, some real struggles with housing right now. Um, overall housing stock, enough affordable housing, um, housing of different sizes and shapes that meet, you know, the needs of a diverse population that has kind of different ways of living than, you know, we have historically planned for in communities. And so all of this feeds into, you know, the work we do with our area municipalities around you know, planning for housing developments, um, looking at, you know, the projected growth across across the region over the next years, you know, who is pushing that growth and, and what are their needs likely to be. It means we do a lot of engagement with, um, you know, our cultural communities, uh, ethnic groups, others to help, um, you know, secure their place, you know, more prominently in community level planning that happens so that, you know, we are doing the best um, and most inclusive planning that we can as a region to make sure that as we grow as as a community, we're doing that in a way that works as best as possible for everyone. What are you hearing from people who are arriving? Do they feel welcome? Do they feel like, uh, I mean, it's always tough, no matter where you are, whether you're moving within country or to a whole new country, it's always difficult to settle in. But are you hearing that uh, that they're they're happy with the reception that they're getting? We do, an, we do a survey of immigrants in Waterloo Region every other year. And one of the questions that we ask is how have you felt welcomed into this community? And, you know, questions around sense of belonging, you know, overall, I think um, we get a very positive response to both of those questions with the majority of immigrants who come into our region feeling, um, you know, a strong sense of welcome when they first arrive and, and, you know, that they're able to develop a sense of belonging to the community, you know, but it's not the case for everybody. And so we really like to, to think about when we're doing our planning with partners across the community and looking at the things that we need to do to help this uh, region be a better place for immigrants who are coming in is really focusing on, you know, that 10 to 12% of people who don't feel welcomed and who don't feel a sense of belonging to try to understand why that is. So as we're working with organizations and others across the region, you know, we're trying to make the kinds of changes that are really responding to what we are hearing um, directly from those newcomers who are not having as good of a time here as others. 
Tara, you've been doing this for quite a while now. Uh, so much, we see this from the numbers again today, so much of Canada's population growth, employment uh, growth depends on, on immigration now. Do you feel like we're headed in the right direction? I mean, we keep the government keeps encouraging, uh, obviously, more immigration. We know we need it. Are we prepared? Do we feel like we're prepared? You know, we're wholly supportive of immigration, um, obviously, in the work that we do and as a community and you know, as a as a resettlement community for refugees and a community where so many people are involved in the private sponsorship of refugees and so active citizens going out to bring people um, into Canada. And we've also seen with, you know, our grassroots community members being very active and engaging with Ukrainians who have been displaced by war and helping them to come into this region and get settled here. Um, we want to be incredibly supportive of immigrants coming into our community, and we really support strong immigration into Canada, and it needs to be done well. Communities need to have the resources and infrastructure in place that are needed to support the population as it grows and changes. And, and we see it, you know, there's a, there's a housing crisis in Canada. Our healthcare system is under significant pressure. We're probably a bit behind where we need to be, and so you know, that's why the work that we do with our municipal governments um, to help them have the knowledge and resources that they need for effective planning, um, the work that we do, you know, in conversation with the provincial and federal governments, you know, to be an active voice in, in saying, yes, yes, strong immigration, but also we really need to focus on these other things so that once people are here in our communities, um, they have a good experience and, and and not the challenges that some currently have when they come in. Tara, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, this next half hour may make you um, hungry, to say the least. I first moved to China in 2008, having never been there. Um, I knew stuff about it, but I never actually set foot in the country. So my knowledge of food, Chinese food, was pretty limited. I've been exposed to more than just like food court and so on, but I didn't really have any idea what to expect when I arrived there. People ask me questions like, what are you going to eat? And I, I really I really couldn't say. You know, I really didn't know. I mean, I'd, I'd had, you know, I had some exposure to dim sum and things like that, but I really didn't know. Well, it turns out, of course, you'd struggle to find anything you'd find at a food court here in China. It just doesn't exist. The food does not exist. It, it, it's, it's not completely different. But almost none of the dishes you'd see on a menu here actually exist there. Um, and the food was literally one of the very greatest parts about living in that country is just how unbelievably good and varied and different the food is from the different provinces, whether it be Yunnan or Sichuan or Shanxi, I'm probably going to get it wrong, you know, Shanghainese food, uh, Cantonese food, obviously from Guangdong. It's all fantastic. And everywhere you go, the food changes a little bit. Um, uh, it's it's all remarkably good. And that brings me back home. So when I got back, people always asked me, well, what was the food like? And I would always say, well, it, it was great. It was excellent, but it was different. It's hard to explain. Now, once I came back, if you start to look around cities like Vancouver or Toronto, you can find all the stuff that you can find in China here if you go looking for it. Um, but I also gave you a new appreciation for what I'd grown up with as so-called quote-unquote Chinese food. And it was different. Obviously, it's different, but it's ours. And there is a real story behind it as well. 
Uh, there's a great U.S. documentary that came out a while ago called The Search for General Tso, which is uh, really interesting about how General Tso's chicken came to be and why it's so popular in America and how it changes in each part of the, depending what state you're in and how it's been adapted. Um, there's a great book out not long ago from Global Mail journalist Anne Hui called Chop Suey Nation, where she journeys across Canada to small town Chinese restaurants from Newfoundland to B.C., also fascinating. And now Global News and Chorus Radio digital journalist Patricia Chan has sprinkled some uh, particular Alberta flavor into this very interesting story about the origins of uh, Chinese food in this country and how different it is and why that is with the story behind a provincial favorite there called ginger beef, which I have to confess, I don't think I've ever had, which already disqualifies me from this conversation probably. Uh, But Patricia Chan joins me now from Calgary. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. So tell me about the inspiration for this piece. I gather it was sort of behind the closing of a restaurant. Yeah, so <clears throat> there are definitely some, um, there are two different kinds of inspiration. Um, one is the closing of the restaurant. It's a very near and dear um, restaurant to many Calgarians. A lot of Calgarians grew up with this restaurant. It's been in Calgary for 47 years before it closed. And when they announced that they were going to retire, um, it was a big thing on the internet. And that's what inspired me to look into this dish um, because it's a dish that a lot of Calgarians say, oh, it was invented in Calgary. And that kind of piqued my interest a little bit. But right. my... The Silver Inn restaurant, right? Is that that's the one, the Silver yes. Inn? Right. Yes, Silver Inn restaurant, yes. Um, and the other thing um, that really sparked my interest is I, I lived in Taiwan for 15 years. I basically grew right. up there. And when I came back, you know, like you, I came back, I was like, it's just different Chinese food. Um, I, I wasn't used to it because I grew up in Taiwan, which is completely different in cuisine. Um, but, you know, w- before I got here in global, I was always asking myself, like, why, like, what, what's so important about Chinese Canadian food? There has to be a story here. And when I guess Silver Inn closed, this just gave me the opportunity to kind of write about it. Yeah, I remember being at a night market in Gaoxiang in, in, in Taiwan. The best snacks, on, really probably the best snacks on the planet. I don't mean to, to be to be just to wax poetic too much, but Taiwan has some amazing, <laughs> <laughs> some amazing food. So tell me about tell me about ginger beef, because it's an interesting story about how this sort of trying to adapt um, to a cuisine that you don't really know that well, but you sort of have an idea. So back 47 years ago, this idea of trying to make something that would appeal to uh, to the palate of the people they were trying to serve. Yeah, so when I talked to the owner um, of Silver Inn, um, the idea back, the idea from for the dish, um, when they first opened the restaurant, they were trying to create a dish that would not only appeal to the palates of Calgarians at the time, but also introduce um, a new dish, like a new dish to Calgarians. So they saw that Calgarians were eating beef, um, as most Albertans are. We love our beef. Um, And they're like, well, what if we battered and fried it like a French fry and finish it in a sweet and sour tangy sauce like ketchup? And so that that was what their inspiration. And it just kind of took off from there. Um, Calgarians loved it, obviously. Um, And it made their business very successful. Um, uh, what he told me, um, you know, he 
he and his family were trying to make this business successful because it's their livelihood. Um, and this just did it for them. It's it, when I read that in your story, it's such an interesting way of trying to sort of of seeing uh, the North American or the Canadian palate through somebody else's eyes, right? Like, let's fry it and make it really sweet. They'll love it. It's sort of an interesting way of yeah. of, uh, of looking at, of looking at it, you know, sugar and fat. <laughs> yeah, yes, sir. Thank you. <laughs> um, it, but but it, it it took on a life of. I mean, I gather it's 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 really become a, a, a dish that people love right across the province. It's sort of become a, a signature dish in many ways. And many different parts of the country have them. Yeah, I mean, when I moved back to Canada, I was really um, kind of sh- not. I, I can't say shocked, but I guess surprised to see ginger beef almost everywhere in food courts in. Um, in Canadian malls, especially, but like in any Chinese restaurant I go to, I see ginger beef and every Chinese restaurant has their own recipe for ginger beef. Um, but it's very popular, um, not just in Alberta and not just in Calgary, but everywhere. And, you know, but one thing that I keep hearing from people on the internet um, is that the ginger beef that they get elsewhere is different. And every time they go to Calgary, they have to get ginger beef, which I find absolutely right. fascinating. So it's the authentic, it's it is, the authentic it's, one. Yes, it's the authentic one. <laughs> how, how, you know, I, I must have had it somewhere somehow, but I don't remember eating it. I've never had it in Calgary, which is to my great regret now at the Silver Inn. Um, but did you, did you taste it? What was it like? Um, I didn't have the one specifically at uh, Silver Inn um specifically, but I've had um, ginger beef around in Calgary at many different restaurants. Um, and it's, it's very, um, it's sweet, um, it's which sweet. Yeah. it's sweet, um, which I, I, I'm not really used to because in Taiwan, um, it's more savory. Like, I guess it depends where you are in Taiwan because the cuisine is just so diverse, but where I'm from in Taiwan, it's very, like very salty, very savory flavor. Um, it's, it, it definitely is crunchy. You have to eat it fresh. You have to eat it fresh. You can't, it's not a, it's not a dish that travels well, but it is crunchy and it really is sweet and safe. It's really hard to explain really, but, um, you have to try yeah. it. Yeah, you have to try it. You have it. to try it. And, and then you went out and then you sort of set out to, to expand on this a bit and found that, um, that there were a lot of dishes that were created under different circumstances to appeal to different palates and that some of the stories were sort of inspirational, like ginger beef. Some of them were born of, of, of struggle in different times that, that we eat here that are, that mightn't be the same, have quite the same background. Uh, so you found that there were a lot of stories behind a lot of the dishes that we call Chinese food in this country. Yeah. So um, ginger beef is just one of the many um, Chinese Canadian foods um, that was born out of, really a Chinese immigrant need to survive. Um, you see chop suey, mushu pork. Um, I don't, I haven't seen mushu pork here in Canada. I've seen it in America. But, mushu, but chop suey and mushu pork are also um, two other dishes that were born out of um, Chinese Canadian restaurants. Um, and these dishes have a really interesting history because they came from Chinese immigrants that come to Canada um, and obviously there's a language barrier. And this is in the 1850s. But they land here in Canada with little to sometimes no knowledge of English. So they were either forced to work on the Canadian Pacific Railway, Railway for poverty rate, 
poverty wages or open their own business. Um, and, you know, it, it was a lot of these dishes are just kind of experiments of, oh, you know, what appeals to the Western palate. Um, but a lot of these restaurants started out as, oh, we don't have a lot of Chinese dishes on the menu. And, but then they slowly introduced um, these new dishes into, I guess, the Chinese Canadian menu. And that's just how it came about. Is there a concern, uh, Paula, that when these restaurants go, that these dishes will go with them, that something is lost? I think there's a lot of anxiety, especially for people my age or younger, um, you know, Chinese Canadians, Asian Canadians, um, that when these legacy restaurants go away, that Chinatown and the essence of Chinatown is also going away. But when I talked to an anthropology professor here at the University of Calgary, you know, she argued that that might not that that might not necessarily be the case. Um, you know, these legacy restaurants will be remembered in their own way. But it also brings opportunity for new restaurants and new, um, you know, cultural aspects um, to come in, um, modern Chinese aspects. And, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know how, I, I don't know how attuned you are to Chinese pop culture, but in Chinese pop culture, there is a lot of emphasis of, you know, combining to the traditional and, and in with modern, I guess, trends. And, you know, she said that there is an opportunity there for um, Chinatown to have that as well. Yeah, I, I guess an opportunity, as you found in your article, an opportunity not only to to mo- match the modern uh, with the old, but also in Canada to, to create different kinds of fusion than you might find in China, for instance, like something uniquely Canadian. Yeah, so, um, in you know, I, I wrote about Dilo, which is this, new Asian restaurant in Toronto, and it's absolutely delicious. I've eaten there before. Uh, but Nick Liu, um, the executive chef and owner, his main, like, his main mission is to introduce, um, you know, introduce dishes that combine old flavors with new techniques um, and really changing the way and perspective that Canadians view Asian cuisine. Um, because, you know, I, I've, kind of seen it but he's seen it more because he's obviously in the industry um but a lot of the times these you know it doesn't matter chinese vietnamese or indonesian a lot of these foods are often siloed into you know this kind of box um and a lot of asian canadian chefs like nick are trying to break out of that mold yeah, and, and it would make sense that uh, that they would bring new ideas to the if they were going to continue in the in the business because I gather one of the issues with a lot of the restaurants that we would consider to be traditional uh, Chinese restaurants in the Chinatowns of Canada uh, closed because there's no generation to pass them on to really that uh, that they don't want their kids working in the same business they've gone off to do other things but if you're going to get involved with food uh, I would imagine what you want to do is bring your own you don't want to be making what you what <laughs> what what was made you know 1978 you want to try something new and bring something new to the table. Yeah, and that's, you know, that that's a very ambitious goal for a lot of young chefs, right? Um and you're right, a lot of um a lot of these restaurants that were opened um by Chinese immigrant families, a lot of the parents don't want their child to work um in the restaurant industry. Um because for them it's a mean for for the parents it's a mean for survival. 
Um, and it comes with a lot of hardship. It comes with a lot of tears. Um, and they just don't want their child to go through that because that's just their experience working in the industry. Um, and the anthropology professor that I talked to made a good point is that, you know, a lot of the times these children are, um, you know, have the privilege of having the Canadian education that they aren't, that the parents themselves couldn't have. So they want, they want their children to be um, more ambitious in their, I guess, in their career choices. Um, and that's why they, you know, that's why a lot of these restaurants are closing down is because, because of this. And, you know, I, I don't think that we should look at this as a sad thing. Um, and I think it's, I think we should look at it as a new, you know, new opportunity um, for new things. Yeah. And, and every time someone sees ginger beef on the, on the menu at the food court, think about where it came from and had that a long history behind it. <laughs> um, it was fascinating stuff, Paula. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It, it's been great talking about talking about this yeah no it was a fascinating article i think it's something that you know it's something that uh it speaks a lot about not just the history of food here but also the history of different groups coming here and and bringing their food with them and adapting it and so forth and it was uh, a fascinating insight into that have a great night you too i work at night so i haven't paid a lot of attention to what's going on in the u.s midterm elections i gather if you turn on any of the amnets it's on it's blanket coverage but one of the most fascinating races, for many reasons, first of all, it matters. Uh, you know, the Senate is very much up for grabs in these midterms, um, and whoever wins Pennsylvania has a good chance of controlling the Senate. So it is a big, big election uh, in the grand scheme of things as far as American politics is concerned. And that, of course, means that candidates have been facing off in debates, and few debates were more anticipated than the lone debate between these two candidates last night's showdown in Pennsylvania between Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz. Yes, that, Dr. Oz. You may recognize the name. Uh, But there was a lot to debate there. There were many issues to talk about. Fetterman's health was also center stage following a stroke that he had five months ago, in no small part because the Oz's campaign has been continuously casting doubt on his ability to do the job because of it. It was a matter the 53-year-old Harvard grad Fetterman chose to address head-on last night. And let's also talk about the elephant in the room. I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate, mush two words together, but it knocked me down, but I'm going to keep coming back up. And this campaign is all about, to me, is about fighting for everyone in Pennsylvania that ever got knocked down that needs to get back up and fighting for all forgotten communities all across Pennsylvania that also got knocked down that needs to keep get back up. John Fetterman there. Well, following the debate, there were a lot of headlines about his struggles. It continued today to raise questions about how transparent campaigns should be about a candidate's health. If Republicans using it to cast doubt on his capacity to hold a Senate seat really crosses a line, and if the media scrutiny of Fetterman's rehabilitation is in of itself an issue. So since none of us or few of us live in Pennsylvania, at least I don't think we do, maybe if you're out there and you're in Pennsylvania, let me know, but a few of us live there and we won't be voting in that election one way or another, perhaps instead this is a chance to learn about the impacts of stroke and the stigma that can still come with it. Because I think in many ways that's that's what we're watching unfold 
in Pennsylvania. And there's a lot of questions. Even I woke, woke up this morning with a lot of questions about exactly what was going on. Um, joining me now to help us do that is Dr. Sean Duclo. He's an associate professor in the Department of Clinical Neuroscience at the University of Calgary and the medical director of stroke rehabilitation for the Calgary Stroke Program. Thanks so much for your time tonight, doctor. Uh, thank you. For, thank you for having me. What did you make? Did you manage to see any, any of the debate or any of the highlights today? It's been it's been everywhere. Well, I, so I didn't manage to see it. I heard about it, uh, and it's a it's an interesting thing. I mean, I so I work in a, a busy clinic. We see lots of patients with stroke, and lots of people have a stroke and walk away. And you you know, a month or two after the stroke, or sometimes even a few days after the stroke, you wouldn't know they had one. And so. I deal with patients, though, who have significant deficits after stroke. They have trouble moving one side of their body. They have trouble with their vision. Uh, and that can take a lot longer to uh, to come back. And, you know, we work to try to get people back to their maximum capacity after they have a stroke. So uh, it's it's interesting how the how the media has uh, has um, picked up on on this this uh, debate and the issue. And I, and I appreciate why, I guess, but uh, yeah, someone can be have a stroke and they may have some difficulty with aphasia, which is trouble communicating, but they may be completely cognitively intact behind that. So, Yeah, I, I, th- I think part of the issue here, and Stat Magazine, that, have, that are a very, very good medically focused magazine, essentially put out an article this morning saying, let's make this a learning moment. Uh, you know, that, that was their take on it and, and wrote a long article about it that I thought was really well done. Um, what are some of the misconceptions here? I think part of the issue is that campaigns in the U.S. are so focused on image and, abil- and debate, for instance, that if one of the two candidates does appear to have trouble communicating, immediately their cognitive abilities are called into question, right? And I think that's what the other campaigns have been doing. It's been a nasty campaign, to be fair. Um, but there is a big difference between struggling with your language skills in the months during rehabilitation and your cognitive abilities, I gather. Yes, yeah. And so in the, the centers that uh, control our ability to, to output speech, uh, you know, they can, you can have a stroke which overlaps with some of the areas of the brain that control your cognitive function. But you know, certainly we see patients who come through who have fairly isolated abilities and the ability to get words across. Or they may have some word-finding ability, like you mentioned in the clip that you just played. Um, but everything behind that curtain is completely intact. And so that can be, it, it can lead to very false perceptions on behalf of others of what's actually going on. And, and in patients that I deal with, you can have the opposite happens where they can present very well initially, so they can talk and they can communicate fairly well, but they have significant cognitive deficits behind that. So you wouldn't have them driving a car or you wouldn't have them doing complex activities, but on the surface, the, the person may look just fine. Is there, I mean, for the people that you see and help, um, is there still a frustration over the stigma that may still exist when it comes to someone who isn't able, after a certain point, who's still struggling to find find their words, as, as John Fetterman was mentioning in that clip? Oh, significantly. I see this every day in clinic. I have many of my patients come in and they complain about it. And quite honestly, in someone who's recovering from aphasia, you know, one of the one of the last things to recover is that ability to find words. And so I have patients who are will get very quick at being able to get another word to replace the word that they're trying to find, and they're very eloquent. And on the surface, you have no idea that they had a stroke. But 
in private when they're talking with me or maybe they're talking with their spouse, they'll confess that they struggled to find the words that they wanted to find in the conversation that they just had with you. Yeah, it must be. I mean, I can imagine how frustrating it is individually. Do you think as society that it's one of those one of those barriers that we still have? And that's why this whole John Fetterman issues yeah. has created so much attention because we still struggle to understand, you know, understand exactly what recovering from a stroke might look like? Yeah, I, I don't think a lot of people appreciate what recovering from a stroke looks like until it happens to them or it happens to someone they love or they care about. Uh, and and one of the one of the misconceptions I think um, is that you know we can give a, a medication and, and things get all better and that's that's because of the success of some of my colleagues who deal with acute stroke in the first 24 hours that have therapies that you know impact maybe about 10 or 15 percent of individuals with stroke where they can remove a clot and the effects of the stroke in in most cases go away and the patient walks out a day from the hospital a day or two later and they're essentially untouched by that stroke. But the rest of the people who come through and have ongoing impairments because of their stroke need to go through often fairly extensive rehabilitation. So uh, I don't know Fetterman's story, what rehabilitation that he's that he's come through, but the patients I would see with aphasia might spend you know four or five hours a week at working with a speech language pathologist. They might do that for six or eight weeks while they're in an inpatient rehabilitation facility. They might, in addition to spending that time one-on-one with the therapist, they'll have homework that's given to them that they do with a partner, a family member, and then they go out into outpatient environment where two or three days a week they're going into an outpatient um, center and they're again working with a speech therapist, working with a therapy assistant to try to rehabilitate their ability to use language and communicate. So it's a really intensive process because there's no magic pill to fix what's wrong when you get into post-stroke aphasia. Yeah, it's, it sounds like it sounds like rehabbing a broken bone or something that you have to sort of work at it to bring back its strength. How effective is yeah. it in, in, forever? I mean, I realized that I, I was reading today, and you can correct me if this is wrong, but that language is one of those things that actually continues to recover for a longer period of time than some other functions, that language can be recovered for, you know, over time by someone who's recovering from a stroke. Yeah. So, you know, when I'm talking to patients, you know, often you have to emphasize we're not doing the hundred meter dash here. This is a, this is an ultra marathon in terms of how long this is going to take to recover and how long you're going to have to keep working at things. And patients can make gains for quite a long time. The, the old adage that we talked to a patient is really based on studies in the 1990s that looked at motor recovery of the, of the arm and the leg. And, we saw sort of most of recovery would happen over the first three or four months. But with language, yeah, we do see that it can recover for a much longer period of time, one, two years, even beyond that. I'll have patients come in and they'll say, yeah, I'm still, you know, things still are getting a bit better. I'm able to carry on a conversation a bit. So that sometimes patients struggle with that a little bit, that that this is going to be a real hard fight to get back to where I need to be. And you asked about how successful it is. Um, it, it can be pretty successful. It depends a bit on how much effort, in some cases, the patient's willing to put in. And the other factor probably is the size of their stroke. How much of the brain has been damaged as a result of the stroke is a factor that consistently comes up when we look at cases and, uh, and how, well they, how well they resolve over time. 
Now he's been wanting to put garlic chives in everything. <laughs> well, not everything. Dad, the sight of your face is drooping. Mom? Probably nothing. Dad, are you okay? You're slurring. Why are you slurring? Raise your arms up in the air for me. Dad, are you okay? Gracie, call 911. Perhaps one of the most, I thought, effective public um, information campaigns that we'd seen on Canadian TV in quite some time. I'm with Dr. Sean Duclo this half hour. Uh, he is the medical director of stroke, stroke rehabilitation for the Calgary Stroke Program, also with the uh, University of Calgary, uh, clinical in the Department of Clinical Neuroscience. Um, raising awareness has been a real issue, I guess, when it comes to stroke, uh, Dr. Duclo. Mainly, we have an aging population, so the risk is increasing. Um, and we need people to be aware of, of what the signs are. Are we doing a better job? Well, I, I think we're, we're doing an okay job, certainly from what I see, which is, which is Calgary-based, in terms of people recognizing that they or their loved one has had a stroke and getting to the hospital in a timely manner. And that's, that's really critical across the country because we actually, you know, for the last 20 years, a little over 20 years, we've had therapies that can improve outcomes. And so we have uh, something called thrombolysis, so we can break up clots when they get to the brain if patients get in within the first few hours after they've had a stroke. And in more recent years, we actually have a catheter-based therapy uh, called endovascular therapy where we can... Uh, my neuroradiology and neurosurgery colleagues can snake a catheter up into the brain to pull out the clot. Um, it, it, it's a select group of cases, so you know, 10 to 15% of cases that uh, get those therapies, and, and uh, it's because they get into hospital in time. Um, I still do see patients who uh, come, to, come to the hospital 10 days, 15 days after they've had a stroke, and at that point, they're just not eligible for those therapies because the damage is already done. So I think we do, we're doing better than we did 20 years ago. Could we continue to do better? Sure. I think there's room for, room for improvement on recognizing, you know, if somebody has a, a droop in their face that's happened suddenly, uh, if they're having trouble talking, if they're having trouble moving one side of their body, it's time to call 911 and get to the hospital. Yeah, that's that great acronym, FAST, right? It, it, yeah. uh, it's, it's, yeah. once, you, once you read it, as I did today many times, it's hard to forget it, actually. It's, it's, it's a good one. Um, so people remember, I guess, it's, it's face, is it drooping? Arms, can you raise both? Speech, is it slurred or jumbled? And time to call 911. That's, yeah. the, uh, yeah. that's the acronym. Um, and, and this is a problem. I mean, not to mention just, you know, the earlier you catch one of a, a stroke, the, the less demand... You, on the medical system, I imagine that's part of the issue now too. Is that we have a medical system under strain, and that uh, and yep. that you know the more we can prevent people from long term chronic problems, the better. Yes, yeah, and, and I mean, I, our, our hospital lengths to stay cost thousands and thousands of dollars, which is Canadians we really don't see the cost of that. Uh, but um, if, if we can get somebody in and out of hospital in a matter of twenty four or forty eight hours versus a, a typical patient who who comes through, uh, and, and, and the length of stay is very little bit across the country, but but they might spend if, if they have a moderate stroke, so you know significant impairments in their ability to move or talk and or talk, um, they might spend eight to fifteen days in the acute care hospital and another forty to forty five days in an inpatient rehab facility, and then they might spend another six to twelve weeks in an outpatient rehab program. And the cost of that, again, varies across the country. 
but it's it's significant. You're into the six figure range per patient uh, per stroke. So, yeah, I mean, it it's it certainly um, it's certainly and and I never realized I think just how important time was when it comes to stroke that that you can actually do a lot of good if you can if you catch it early. I mean, you were just mentioning that and just how much of a difference it actually makes. Yeah, it, it can make the difference between walking out of the hospital with no deficits. And, you know, you know, even at the end of you know, six months of treatment, uh, still having a significant uh, inability to be able to move uh, or to communicate. Uh, to go back to where we began with all this, I think sometimes when people have a stroke and it's obvious that they have, they've had some impacts from it, that people around them or even people who, who meet them don't really know what to say or how to act. When you talk to people in those situations, how should we approach someone who's had a stroke? How should we try to make, uh, you know, how should we try to improve their, their chances of success and not hinder their chances of, su- of success in the way that we treat them? <laughs> Yeah. So, so I guess it, it, it probably depends on a, a little bit on where you meet someone in their recovery path. But, it, but first of all, they're another person. So treat them like another person, <laughs> and certainly don't don't look down on them, which I, I see sometimes happen. Um, it, oftentimes, when people are going through therapy and they're in that first three, four, five, six months that they're in the hospital or they're working outpatient rehab. Uh, a lot of people could benefit from encouragement because they're doing a lot of hard work. Uh, and sometimes from day to day, they don't actually see how much they gain. Uh, for patients who I might see once a month or once, you know, once every eight weeks in that process, you can see the big changes. Uh, and often, you know, I'll get a smile when I'll say, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Smith, You've made big improvements. I can see those improvements. You know, you're communicating much better. You're moving much better. You're walking faster. So I think you know, providing providing a co- appropriate encouragement. And for some people, it's about actually providing support. A lot of my patients uh, who have aphasia uh, are are looking for people to communicate with. And so right. having having someone there to talk to actually is an important part of their therapy and their recovery. So you can you can volunteer to do something along those lines as well, Dr. Sean Duclo. Thank you so much for uh, for um, shedding some light on this on a day when people have been talking about it, uh, both in an informed and ill-informed way. So, thanks for bringing bringing some information here to us. Thank you, thank you for having me. Ben. 